Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for anyone who loves cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. Oh, and I'm Julia. <laughs> yeah, you're Julia. That is me. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's, that's you. <laughs> I, I wonder if like one day we're going to just not say our names or whatever and people are going to be like, wait a second. <laughs> Where'd they go? Who's hosting this Except podcast? Except our voices are distinctive enough. I that- think so too. That they can, you know, but there are still some that I listen to that I still don't can't tell the oh, yeah, difference same. of co-hosts. It was one of the co- first compliments that we got when we started the podcast was like, I love that I can tell the difference between your voices. And we were like, we live to serve. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was nature. That yeah. wasn't even, In fact, uh, we yeah, didn't I even try say, that. I was going to make a joke about how you and I have identical voices, but I... I've lowered my octave <laughs> like do. for the podcast specifically. For the podcast. Yes. I have like a voice modulator like Dumois. <laughs> it's like, I'm, hello, I'm Lauren. You can't tell who I am. Like it's <laughs> like an Elizabeth Holmes thing. <laughs> We're going to solve the world's yeah, problems the end, with Theranos. By the end of this episode, <laughs> Lauren's real voice will be, um, she'll give you a, she'll give you a sneak peek of it. It'll be like a terrible, sexy baby voice. It's been 225 <laughs> episodes. Lauren's been disguising her voice the whole time. It'll be like a, it'll be a Patreon thing. It's like, <laughs> Patreon. It'll be like, if you, if you send $50 to us, you'll hear Lauren's real voice. <laughs> I love that. Oh my gosh. That's great. We'll keep, we'll keep a running list of things that <laughs> we can add to our non-existent Patreon. We're not doing a Patreon. Everybody It's yeah. not happening. Yep. 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 <laughs> um, so I realized that I've been doing so many biographies lately that I yeah. just kind of wanted to go back to one of my favorite topics, um, which is obviously food and drink. Uh, of course. And I read a really interesting article this week, and I'm going to include okay. um, that later on in this episode. But today's topic is called Every Day I'm Truffling. And I didn't just write the episode around that title. Like I didn't come up with that title and then write the episode like I do sometimes. I've done that before. Yeah, I've yeah no, been I like, know. no, this is great wordplay. This is going to be my topic this week. But no, uh, you should say you should know that when Julia said every day I'm troubling, she did a little joyful dance <laughs> <laughs> to celebrate her punning qualities. So I want you all to know that, that, that there was definitely like a full celebration choreography going on. Yep. Yeah. Again, something else for the Patreon. Yeah, exactly. All right, guys. Truffles. What are they? What are they? Great question. As recently as 100 years ago, people did not know what truffles were. And definitely they did not know how they grew. Um, So some ancient scientists theorized that they were a type of root, maybe a cousin to radishes and carrots or also perhaps the product of lightning storms. Um, So the growth of, of truffles does look a little magical when you get really into it It, it's kind of has a web of near invisible filaments that interlink with tree roots to produce fungal fruiting bodies Mm. anyway so what are they um so a truffle is the fruiting body of a subterranean fungus which is one of the many species of the genus tuber so truffles are and here's the science word for you ectomycorrhizal fungi, which means that they're usually found in close association with tree roots. So that really long word, it's a form of a symbiotic relationship that occurs between a fungal symbiote or a 
mycobiont and a mm. root of a plant species. So they're not technically a mushroom either. Um, okay. So truffle fungi receive carbohydrates from their host plants and they provide them with valuable micro and macronutrients too. So plant macronutrients, they include things like potassium and phosphorus and nitrogen and sulfur, all that really delicious stuff. And yeah. micronutrients include iron, copper, zinc, and chloride. So in truffle fungi, as in all... Um, of these fungi of this type, these ectomycorrhizae, the majority of nutrient exchange occurs in the in a net that's the intracellular hyphal network between plant root cells. So a lot of stuff is happening in these teeny tiny fibers at the at the plant roots. Wow. So the origin of the word truffle appears to become appears to come from the Latin term tuber, meaning swelling or lump, mm, mm. which became tufer and gave rise to the various European terms like the Danish truffle, Dutch truffle, French truff, German truffle, Italian tartufo, and the Spanish trufa. So it is, here's the thing about truffles, guys. It's nearly impossible to farm them. <laughs> so oh. instead, there are about 200,000 registered hunters and their dogs in the world yes. sniffing them out in the wild. So mm -hmm. when I say nearly impossible, I mean that some Frenchmen figured out some methods in the 19th century. Um, they planted some acorns they'd found on the soil around truffle-producing oak trees. But after World War II, their production of truffles plummeted. And depending on the weather and soil properties of each region, truffles end up growing differently. So the, they didn't, mm -hmm. you know, they never really figured it out, never really kept it going. So this is a suburban species that only germinates and thrives under certain conditions. And cultivation time of truffles can sometimes take up to 10 years. Wow. And even then, your results may not always be as expected. So mm -hmm. this thing, it's rare. It's hard to grow. Yeah. Kind of hard to find. Um, of close to 90 species of tubers, only about 10 are actually consumed as a delicacy. And we're going to be talking about a couple of those. Mm. So the kinds of edible truffles. The tuber melanosporum is also known as the black truffle, the Perigord truffle, or the French black truffle. It's native to Southern Europe, and it's one of the most expensive edible fungi in the world. Um, the natural habitat of the black truffle includes various regions in Spain, France, Italy, and Croatia. So... You might have seen a picture of a truffle before, or you yeah. might have had one before. So a, a black truffle, it's a round, dark brown fruiting body. It has a black brown skin with small um, cusps that are almost like pyramidal in form, like they're kind of pointy and jagged. Cool. They have a very strong aromatic smell, and they normally reach a size of up to about 10 centimeters or four inches. Their flesh wow. is initially white, and then it gets dark. And on the inside of this truffle are spidery white veins inside mm. this black truffle, which turn brown with age. So the fruiting bodies of the black truffle exude a scent reminiscent of undergrowth, strawberries, wet earth, and dried fruit with a hint of cocoa. Uh, their oh. taste, which fully develops after the truffles are heated, is slightly peppery and bitter. It's also described as earthy, musky, oaky, or nutty. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there are several volatile compounds that contribute to the aroma that are developed by these fruiting bodies in addition to traces of sulfur compounds. And one of these, dimethyl sulfide, is what attracts truffle dogs, truffle hogs, and truffle flies to the fruiting bodies. Huh. Um, so black truffles, they grow between like two inches and 20 inches below the earth in their symbiotic relationship, preferably in loose calcareous soil um, close to the roots of their plant symbionts. And these include things like French oaks, hazel trees, cherry trees, and some other deciduous trees in those areas. 
Mm. Production of black truffles has considerably diminished during the 21st century. It's dropped to around 20 metric tons a year. Um, sometimes it's lot. about 45 metric tons a year. Exactly. By comparison, in 1937, France alone produced 1,000 metric tons of black wow. truffles. So yeah, it's about 20 tons a year now at this point. So in cooking, black truffles are used to refine the taste of meat, fish, soups, cheeses, and risotto. Um, the aroma of black truffles does not diminish when they're heated. It actually becomes more intense. So they're commonly shaved into or on top of a dish um, raw, mm-hmm. or they're sometimes infused with high quality olive oil or butter. So black truffles can be heated um, to have their properties kind of develop a little more. Yeah, I don't think I've actually eaten one because I don't have that kind of money, but uh-huh. I feel like I've seen it like on cooking shows or sure. like fancy restaurant shows. They just like shows. shave like a little bit onto it because it's oh, so yeah. pungent and mm-hmm. like it has all of these like aromatic properties, like it it can overpower something if you're, you know, if you'd use it the wrong way, but also it's yeah. so expensive. So expensive. expensive. Oh, my God. Um, So the second one is the tuber magnatum, also called the white truffle or the Piedmont truffle or sometimes a winter white truffle. Um, 18th century world-renowned chef uh, Jean Enthelem Briot-Savarin called this the diamond of the kitchen. And that has kind of, you know, um, endured over the years. So the the white truffle found almost exclusively in the Piedmont region of Italy, famously in the countryside around the cities of Alba and Asti. And their short season runs from just about September to December. So that's the only time of the year that you might be able to find these truffles. Wow. Um, So the white truffle, their exterior is relatively smooth. It's yellowish or grayish. It almost looks like a like a potato um oh, okay. so their flesh is pale cream or brown with white marbling and they can reach up to five inches in diameter or about 12 centimeters and um, can weigh up to 500 grams so they're usually much smaller and they also grow symbiotically with oak hazel poplar and beech trees so White truffles, they taste earthy, pungent, and musky. They tend to be a little bit more spicy and more intense than black truffles. Very garlicky, too. You hear that Mm -hmm. over and over. And you don't want to cook white truffles. The heat will destroy their flavor. So instead, you just kind of shave over or add to the dish at the last moment. Yeah, raw. And they also Mm -hmm. do seem to have a longer shelf life than black truffles, which is Mm. interesting. Um, Italian white truffles are very highly esteemed and are the most valuable on the market. The record price paid for a single white truffle was set in December 2007 when Macau casino owner Stanley Ho paid $330,000 for a truffle that weighed three pounds, five ounces. That's a big ass truffle, though. I will say. It's a big ass truffle, but. It's not $300,000. And like, it's a consumable good. Like, it's not like it's not like you're going to put this on a shelf and like admire it for years and years or a wine that you're going to drink, no. you know, 20 years from now, this is like, you get this and then you have to do something with it. Yeah. You have to eat it somehow. Mm-hmm. So there's also yeah. one other one that's worth mentioning called the, uh, the tuber estavum, also called the summer truffle or the burgundy truffle. And this is also found across European countries. They have a hazelnut like aroma and they're prized for their gastronomic qualities too. They're used in haute cuisine of France and Italy, sometimes as a less expensive or milder substitute for the black truffle. So mm. their bodies are about two to 10 centimeters or that's like one to four inches in diameter. They are relatively large. Um, they are black or brown outer skin forms, again, pr- the these per- 
pyramidal warts that kind of look like a rough bark. <laughs> um, but then sometimes, yeah, the color of them can kind of take on this like burgundy color. And mm. people who know, people who know who hunt them and whatever know exactly what they're looking at when they see one of these. So you might yeah. see these kind of substituted in, in a restaurant instead of a black truffle. I see. So mention, you know, I mentioned a little bit ago about like truffle dogs and stuff. So how do these mm -hmm. truffles actually get harvested? Um, so truffle cultivation, it's really like part science and part art and part treasure hunt. So mm -hmm. you, you can't just grow truffles in your backyard. And again, if you if you even tried like a truffle orchard could take around a decade before any truffles might potentially oh be ready. So because these truffles are subterranean, they're located with the help of an animal possessing a refined sense of smell. So sure. traditionally, pigs have been used for the extraction of truffles. Um, so there's there's truffle dogs, there's truffle hogs. They each have mm -hmm. a keen sense of smell. And hogs have this innate ability to sniff them out, um, but the dogs actually have to be trained. The I see. problem yeah. is truffle hogs tend to eat the truffles when they find them. Yeah, because they're delicious. Yeah, and the dogs don't really have that desire to actually ingest them. So in Italy, the use of a pig to hunt truffles has been prohibited since 1985 because of the damage caused by animals to the truffle ecosystem. Oh, wow. Um, so basically, you know, we're mostly talking about truffle dogs at this point. So once a ripe truffle has been sniffed out by a trained dog, the truffle needs to be quickly shipped to a restaurant or store before spoiling, which happens in about 10 days. So wow. once you dig this up, once you unearth it from its ecosystem, it has to be ripe, first of all, for you to yeah. like, for it to be worth anything. It has to be ripe and ready. Then you take it away from its ecosystem and then you have 10 days. <laughs> then you're like, then you're running against the clock. Yes. Yeah. So um, you've, you've all heard of truffle oil. You've probably yeah. eaten a lot of things with truffle oil. Yeah. I hate to break it to you. Truffle oil doesn't have anything to do with truffles. Oh, so, no. So <laughs> um, key chemical <laughs> compounds that are intrinsic to the aroma of truffles have been isolated and are sold as truffle oil. So mm. some products that are called truffle oils contain zero truffles or might include a piece of like a very inexpensive, unprized um, varietal truffle with no culinary value in the bottle. Like that's just there for show. So like, even if you did get like a fancy, yeah, like kind of like the like worm in your tequila glass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like Goldschlager. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, sorry, uh, the vast majority of truffle oils appears to be olive oil that's been artificially flavored using a synthetic agent such as 2,4-dithiapentane. Uh, so. Mm, delicious. How mm -hmm. delicious. <laughs> so that's why some people, you might, like, maybe you actually, I, does your dad hate truffles oil or something like that? Am I thinking of that? I don't think so he might i mean truffle oil can be i mean just like truffles exactly can be it can be really overwhelming because it's yeah. actually this like fake yeah exactly because it's, it's much more fake. pungent so yeah if you're like eating like popcorn that's been flavored with truffle oil or something like that you might get really sick of it after like yeah you know just a couple of bites or something because it's that like fake chemical taste to it mm -hmm. yeah exactly so if you do get your hands on any sort of truffle like what w should you actually do with it so uh, they're besides sell it besides sell it yes <laughs> <laughs> so their chemical compounds they infuse really well with fats like butter and cream and cheese mm -hmm. um also like 
avocados and coconut cream if you're a vegan. Um, So these volatile aromas from the truffle, they dissipate quicker when heated. So again, most truffles are generally served raw and shaved over warm, simple foods where their flavor will be highlighted. So thin truffle slices could be inserted into meats under the skins of roasted fowl, in preparations Mm. of foie gras, in pâtés or in stuffings. Um, Some specialty cheeses contain truffles and they're also used for producing truffle salt and truffle honey. Um, Mm, So mm -hmm. if you do find yourself in possession of an official truffle, uh, fresh truffles will keep in the refrigerator for one to three weeks with proper care. Um, You should wrap them gently in a paper towel and store them in a glass jar of food storage container in the fridge. And you're supposed to change that paper towel every few days to prevent molding. Um, Mm. People used to recommend storing fresh truffles in like a covered dish of dried rice. But if it's stored in the rice too long, then too much of the moisture and flavor would actually be really drawn out. So they don't recommend that anymore. Um, if you're having a dinner party, plan on about a third of an ounce of fresh truffle per person. That's about 10 oh. grams per person. Good and you're to supposed know. to let the flavor of the fresh truffles be enjoyed by pairing them with simple ingredients. So again, fat brings out this flavor. Avoid pairing truffles with acidic and spicy ingredients because they'll overpower mm-hmm. the truffle. Um, and again, just a little bit of warmth will bring out the flavor of black truffles, but cooking can kill it. So it was really interesting to kind of get into this topic after I just spent 16 weeks doing my wine course. Sure, yeah. That's all about like flavors and aromas and pairings. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting to to think how I can apply that to, you know, all of these other other foods as well. So that was yeah. interesting. So a couple other interesting tidbits. Um, there are also what people call desert truffles, which come from the Middle East, North Africa, the Kalahari Desert, and some other arid and semi-arid lands. These aren't technically related to the European varieties, um, but they are a fungal crop that thrives in a desert climate. They typically grow in conjunction with shrubs and annuals of the rock rose plant. And again, these fungal filaments become intertwined with the plant's roots and they share those nutrients from the soil with the plant in exchange for sugar from the plant. So rather than being like a pungent seasoning though, these desert truffles are a nourishing staple with a meaty mushroomy texture that can be cooked in a variety of ways. Archaeologists have found mention of desert truffles in cuneiform on clay tablets unearthed at the excavation of a 4,000-year-old Amorite site in eastern Syria. And some scientists have argued that the food from the god described in Exodus as manna might actually just be desert truffles. Oh, that's Which is pretty interesting. Ooh, yes. That's cool. And then, again, the inspiration for this episode, it came from... An article in Outside Magazine, which, by the oh. way, we've linked to. We've I've learned so many fascinating things from like long right? form Outside Magazine articles. So this one, it's a January 2022 article in Outside Magazine by Rowan Jacobson called "America's Next Food Craze Is Buried in Appalachia." So I will link to this, and um, this article is all about the Appalachian truffle, which is among the rarest and most expensive foods in the world. So this is a tuber. It's a tuber, oh. um, canalic collatum or tea can as the aficionados call it. Mm. So the author wrote, quote, after much searching, I finally managed to get my hands on a tea can sample during a visit to Quebec two years ago. And I was a skeptical no more. It smelled like a hazelnut tort that had taken a tumble in the moss with a wood nymph. It was the prettiest <laughs> piece of fungus I'd ever seen wrapped in a jewel like burgundy coat. And as I shaved it over linguine, waves of cocoa, clove cigarettes and sweaty spice billed up as seductive as anything I'd ever encountered in Europe. Oh my God. I thought has one of the world's greatest wild ingredients been sitting in our backyard all along just waiting for somebody to notice 
Are you in? Are you in on this article? Okay. I am 100% in. So in this article, he shadows Ben Cable, who's a farmer in a secret location in the hills of Appalachia, Mm -hmm. who's seeking to farm these and train his dogs to find them in the wild. And they also talk with a man named Jeff Long, who is the only person in the United States to regularly hunt and find Tecan for the last few decades. Is like, I was like wrapped. So then that's when I kind of circled back and I was like, what the what is a truffle again? So that was <laughs> yeah. the inspiration for this article, but um, for this episode. But yeah, I'll link to that article too. But you know, yeah. I just wanted to drop some drop some foodie stuff on y'all. That's great. Yeah, Outside Magazine and Texas Monthly, yes, are two of the best long form journalistic uh, like magazines out there today. Yes, go on longreads.com, look up either one of these these magazines, these publications, and you will be thrilled that and the atavis but the atavis i don't yes. think is print yeah and um, um lauren and i are self-proclaimed indoor kids so for us yes. to be uh, to be talking about how excited we are about this outside magazine article i mean that's a that's a pretty good pretty good review uh, i mean i'm an indoor kid but i will happily watch a documentary about some idiot who decides to climb an entire mountain face without any like straps or rods or anything like i'll sit there with a bowl of popcorn and be like don't do that you're gonna fall you know <laughs> truffle popcorn <laughs> if you will yeah, truffle popcorn. So yes, so that is is pretty short, but uh, that was um, what you needed to know about truffles. That was very good. I learned so much. Um, I will say that there was a recent documentary that just came out called The Truffle Hunters. Oh, which came out in 2020. I haven't seen it. I remember seeing like, apparently it's a very, um, like very contemplative kind of quiet documentary about this these old men in the Piedmont region mm-hmm. of Italy who hunt truffles and that's what they do for their their you know livelihoods yeah. and like how they do it and all this stuff and their dogs are so cute because the the breed of dog that Italians use specifically for truffle hunting they're called Lagotto Romagnolos and they are like little teddy bears yeah. they're so cute they got like this curly coat and so they they have like all these like beautiful soft curls <laughs> all around their body they're so adorable um, so I haven't seen it, but I imagine that was also something that might be interesting to that watch. The cool. Hunters, yeah. Yeah. I feel like I first, I, okay. <laughs> Hear me Please. out. Please. I I'm listening. Like DuckTales taught me a lot. Yeah. Okay. So DuckTales did a thing about the spruce goose, which they did which taught me about Howard Hughes. Mm-hmm. I feel like there was some episode where there was something happening where people were hunting truffles. And then of course, like Gizmo Duck taught me all kinds of stuff. Anyway, oh, yeah. just thinking about, you know, how like this, you know, the Simpsons had yeah. a lot of like, a, you know, adult, ref- obviously the Simpsons is for adults, but like it had a lot of like jokes. Cultural references. Have, have yeah. learned, yeah, as, um, as for trivia purposes. But it turns out DuckTales, surprisingly, you don't sleep on DuckTales for your learning because it's there. I mean, it was it was there when we were kids. We just didn't know it until later. <laughs> the way it goes. So pivoting just a teeny tiny bit. Um, okay. You'll notice that I didn't mention anything about chocolate truffles in this episode because that's <gasps> no. what my quiz is about. Yeah, This quiz is called the Truffle Shuffle, a quiz on everyone's favorite confection, chocolate. Uh, now, we did previously have a very excellent episode on chocolate with guest star Shay Henry all the way back that's in great. episode 133, chocolate, chocolate, chocolate act. Um, <laughs> so really, how much of that do you remember, Lauren? We'll see. Question one. 
Kirk Fogg definitely knows this answer. Cocoa has been consumed in some form dating back to the 18th century BCE by which early Mesoamerican civilization settled around present-day Veracruz, Mexico? Question two. Translating in English to food of the gods, what is the scientific name for the genus of the cacao tree? Question three. Let the chocolate wars begin. In 1847, Joseph Fry figured out a way to mix the ingredients of cocoa powder, sugar, and cocoa butter to manufacture a paste which could be molded into a solid chocolate bar. Inspired by Fry, which Birmingham-based company created their first chocolate bar for public consumption two years later? Question four. Don't get mad at me. What's the name of the process of heating and cooling chocolate to stabilize it for making candies and confections? Question five. The Philadelphia Museum of Art cares for a collection of embroidery samplers dating from the 17th to 20th century, donated by which chocolate company? Question six. One of Brazil's most distinctive desserts is a dense, sticky confection made of cocoa powder, condensed milk, and butter rolled in chocolate sprinkles and placed in a small paper cup. What is the name of this national Brazilian treat? Question seven. Since 2017, chocolatiers and the Kaiser Chiefs have agreed that there are four types of chocolate, dark, milk, white, and which other variety patented by Belgian Swiss cocoa company, Berry Calibo? Question eight. Which West African country located on the Gulf of Guinea is the world's largest exporter of cocoa beans? It's held this distinction since 1979, almost decades after the country declared its independence from France. Question nine. Once the richest family in America, which secretive clan owns the sixth largest privately held company in the United States? Besides their confectionery items, they also own non-chocolate brands like Orbit Gum, Combos, and Pedigree Pet Foods. And finally, question 10. Kitokatsu, that means you will certainly win. I'm going to name you four translated flavors of Japanese Kit Kats, and you tell me if these were ever commercially produced or if it is something I made up. First, European cheese. Second, edamame milkshake. Third, cough drop. And fourth, buttermilk jalapeno. I will give you all a minute to think about it, and then we'll be back with your answers. There's a couple of these that I'm like, the fuck? <laughs> All right. <laughs> I guess I don't know enough about chocolate as I thought. Not as much about <sighs> chocolate as I did about musicals. 
weirdly <laughs> enough. <laughs> All right, lay it on All me. Right, question I'll one. Do my best. Kirk Fogg definitely knows this answer. Cacao has been consumed in some form dating back to the 18th century BCE by which early Mesoamerican civilization settled around present day Veracruz, Mexico? Uh, those are the Aztecs. This is actually the Olmecs. Oh, no. The Olmecs. Olmecs. Yes, yes, yes. Oh. So chocolate has been prepared as a drink for nearly all of its history. Um, for example, one vessel found at an Olmec archaeological site on the Gulf Cruise of Veracruz, Mexico, dates chocolate's preparation by the pre-Olmec peoples as early as 1750 BCE. So we did talk about some other early Mesoamerican people in episode 44, MIA. Um, so the Mayans were around um, circa 2000 BCE to 1697 common era. The Aztecs were only 1430 to 1521 common era. Oh, okay. And the Incans were 1438 to 1533 common era. So the Olmecs were the first Mesoamerican civilization. They laid many of the foundations for the civilizations that followed there. Among other firsts by the Olmecs, uh, they appeared to practice ritual bloodletting. They played the Mesoamerican <laughs> ball game, um, and which were hallmarks of nearly all subsequent Mesoamerican societies. The aspect of the Olmecs that is maybe most familiar now to people is their artwork, particularly their like, mm. colossal heads. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. So, yes, those are, the, those are from the Olmecs. And also, Olmec was from the Legends of the Hidden Temple, which was hosted by of Kirk course. Fogg, which is the first time I came across that. All right. Question two, translating in English to food of the gods. What is the scientific name for the genus of the cacao tree? I I couldn't even begin to make a guess. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say food of the gods. I'm going to say Dios. Dios Mios. Dios Mios. Dios Mios. Yes. The Dios Mios. <laughs> the answer is Theobroma. So theos meaning God and broma meaning food. Um, so there are about 20 species of um, cacao trees under the genus Theobroma. The best known, of course, is the Theobroma cacao. So cacao trees, they're small understory trees that need rich, well-draining soils. They generally grow within 20 degrees of either side of the equator because they need a certain amount of rainfall a year. They need temperatures in the range of 21 to 32 degrees Celsius or 70 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit year round. Mm -hmm. um, they cannot tolerate a temperature lower than 59 degrees Fahrenheit, which is why we cannot grow chocolate in New York State. Heartbreaking. Um, yeah, I know, right? Theobromine is the name of the alkaloid in the plant, um, which makes it taste bitter. And it's the oh. reason that chocolate can be poisonous to dogs. Um, so oh. yeah, like set, come to, coming down here, dogs and other animals that metabolize theobromine, they do it more slowly and they can succumb to theobromine poisoning in as little as 1.8 ounces of milk chocolate for a smaller oh, no. dog or 14 ounces for a average sized dog. And the concentration of theobromine in dark chocolate is up to 10 times that of milk chocolate. So Dark chocolate is far more toxic to dogs per unit weight or volume than milk chocolate. So please oh, no. be careful with dishes of chocolate treats around your furry friends. Um, apparently, this is the same. This is the same for cats, but they are much less likely to actually try to ingest your sweets because that's true. Cats are psychopaths. Uh, cats. I will say we did. <laughs> we did have a cat who uh, loved salty foods. She loved ham. She would actually. We would joke that she would call for it ham. <laughs> and uh, she loved potato chips. Like she would, her eyes would get like crazy. Yeah. And she would like grab your hand if you handed her a chip. Like, I want that saltiness. <laughs> she really loved it. I think it's something like cats don't have sweet receptors on their yeah. tongue. So they're yeah. much less likely to try to eat that. Eat that. Yeah. 
All right, question three, let the chocolate wars begin. In 1847, Joseph Fry figured out a way to mix the ingredients of cocoa powder, sugar, and cocoa butter to manufacture a paste, which could be molded into a solid chocolate bar. Inspired by Fry, which Birmingham-based company created their first chocolate bar for public consumption two years later? Um, I'm just throwing this out there as like British. Uh, is this Cadbury? It is Cadbury. Oh, yay. exactly. So J.S. Fry and Sons also developed the Fry's Chocolate Cream, which was the first mass-produced chocolate bar and the world's oldest chocolate bar brand. Uh, Fry's ended up merging with Cadbury in 1919. They lost their operational independence in 1967. But Cadbury, which is now the world's largest confectionery manufacturer, still produces oh. some of its best-known products, including the Fry's Chocolate Cream. Again, which mm-hmm. is the oldest chocolate bar brand in the world. Amazing. All right, question four. Don't get mad at me. What's the name of the process of heating and cooling chocolate to stabilize it for making candies and confections? This was, this was something I struggled with when I worked at the bakery. This is called tempering. Exactly. Yes, tempering. Um, it gives chocolate a smooth and glossy finish. It keeps it from easily melting on your fingers, and it sets up nicely on chocolate-covered treats. I am not even going to um, pretend to know that I know what it what it is other than when I watch it on TV and cooking yeah. shows I'm like you didn't temper that right it's not glossy <laughs> enough it's not gonna yeah. hold up right that's your mistake there's your first it's a mistake. series of heating and cooling it so that you can yeah. you know so that it sets up right I I found it impossible <laughs> impossible I would ne- I would always pass it off to the other people I'd be like please just please just please, please melt this chocolate, this chocolate for me I can't do it they have like whole machines now that like do it yeah the right exact thing that you needed to do so oh i mean you know nine times out of ten i was trying to do it in the microwave you know (laughs) i was just lazy i was like whatever (laughs) all right question five the philadelphia museum of art the only good thing in the city of philadelphia cares for a collection of embroidery samplers dating from the 17th to 20th century donated by which chocolate company is this the Whitman Company? It is the Whitman Company. Yeah. So you Whitman might be familiar sampler. with the Whitman Sampler, a box of chocolates with packaging resembling old-fashioned cross-stitch motifs. So this sampler, it was first released in 1912, was supposedly inspired by the owner's great aunt's embroidery for the packaging of his box. And there's an article oh. from Atlas Obscura that gives some really great details on this. So basically, as the popularity of the Whitman Sampler grew, Whitman's actually collected actual samplers like they were acquiring actual artwork and oh, going to you know estate sales and antique shops at the time and whatever so basically between 1926 and 1964 this company sought embroidery from local dealers they put vintage samplers on display to draw customers into their stores and showrooms there was a significant number of early american samplers but also russian spanish mexican and dutch work and the company that owned whitman's at the time in 1969 which was called pet inc uh they donated the collection to the Philadelphia Museum of Art and pieces periodically go on display or are loaned out. And they're also viewable by the Philadelphia Museum of Art's online collections. Cool. Um, Whitman's is now a subsidiary of Russell Stover Candies in mm-hmm. Kansas City, Missouri, which is owned by Lint and Sprungly, which is oh, the other I didn't know huge, that. huge company. Interesting. All right, number six. One of Brazil's most distinctive desserts is a dense, sticky confection made of cocoa powder, condensed milk, and butter rolled in chocolate sprinkles and placed in a small paper cup. What is the name of this national Brazilian treat? Uh, this sounds delicious, but I have no idea what this is called. I imagine it has a beautiful name in Portuguese. It is a Portuguese name. You're right. Um, I couldn't even begin, but I want to eat it now. <laughs> it's a, uh, a brigadeiro. Brigadero. Oh, Brigadero. Yes. Oh, interesting. So the story of this is really interesting. The story goes, in Brazil, 
well, this part's fact. Women were finally granted the right to vote in 1932, but there were a lot of strings attached. Um, you could only vote if you were married and you had your husband's mm-hmm. permission. You could only vote if you were a widow and you didn't have your husband's permission because he was dead. Or if you were a single woman <laughs> who earned your own salary. But, you know, within a decade, by 1945, suffragists had succeeded in making voting compulsory for everybody. And the first presidential election that they could vote in featured the Brigadero, Air Force leader Eduardo Gomez. So women in Rio de Janeiro who supported him because he he wanted their vote too, they held bake sales and fundraisers with this new confection, which they called the Brigadero in his honor. And the name stuck. Oh. Well, that's it interesting. Is, it is delicious. It's super dark and dense and has chocolate sprinkles around it. And it's so good. And like they've, Heaven. you know, um, it's become a flavor of things too. Like they'll make like brigadero ice cream and, you know, mm. a brigadero cake and all this kind of fun sure, stuff. Sure, yeah. So, so good. All right, question seven. Since 2017, chocolatiers and the Kaiser Chiefs have agreed that there are four types of chocolate, dark, milk, white, and which other variety patented by Belgian-Swiss cocoa company Berry Caribou? Uh, I'm imagining it's not the chocolate, which is known as I Predict a Riot, because that's the only Kaiser Chiefs song I know. Um, But the only other type of chocolate that, I mean, I've only started hearing it recently, so this might not be right, but is it Ruby? It is Ruby. Pink chocolate? Yes. Ruby, 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 Ruby. Ah, that's their that's it. huge, huge, huge song. I think oh, that's okay. what most people know them for. Anyway, Ruby chocolate, exactly. It is the fourth type of chocolate. This pink hue is not created by adding artificial coloring or through chemical manipulation, but it is the result of the cocoa beans that's used to produce this chocolate. Um, so these Ruby cocoa beans are cultivated in countries with specific climatic conditions and they're processed naturally by Berry Calbo and they have that really distinctive pinkish color. And I haven't tried it, have you? Too. Yeah. Um, Trader Joe's had had some like little ruby cocoa pellets out for a while uh, a couple of years back and they were very tasty. I was very, you know, Ooh, buying a bunch of bags of them. So yeah, def- definitely a different flavor. Some people think it like, you know, the, the color can kind of trick you into thinking that it has this like berry flavor to it, like a yeah. raspberry flavor to it. Um, but yeah, definitely it is a distinctive flavor. Cool. All right. Question eight. Which West African country located on the Gulf of Guinea is the world's largest exporter of cocoa beans? It has held this distinction since 1979, almost three decades after the country declared its independence from France. Um, I am, oof, I, I have, I, I just picked like a random West African nation because <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. Is it? Nigeria, um, what is a what is an African country name that is French? I mean, Cote d'Ivoire. Yes, that's the answer. Oh. You got it. <laughs> All right, you know what? I'm going to count that as correct. Yay. Cote d'Ivoire. Um, so yes, the Ivory Coast or the Cote d'Ivoire. Together with Ghana, these two countries produce nearly sixty percent of the world's cocoa every year. Um, bringing it down again for a second, almost 1.5 million children are engaged in hazardous work on these cocoa farms. Yes. Um, but in the 2000s, some co- chocolate producers began to engage in fair trade initiatives to address concerns about the marginalization of cocoa laborers in developing countries. So traditionally, places like this received low prices for their exported commodities like cocoa, which caused poverty to you know continue to run rampant. So fair trade seeks to establish a system of direct trade from developing countries to counteract this unfair system. So if you have the chance to purchase some fair trade cocoa then you don't have to think about the the I w- child labor that goes into it exactly i will 
make a recommendation. I knew it was called. I knew you were going to do this. Yes. Tony Chalk Alonely. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are a great company. They are a, they are a non enslaved person chocolate company. Their chocolate is delicious. They make these giant candy bars that look like something out of Willy Wonka. Like their packaging is really like <laughs> yeah, the font is very 70s. yeah distinctive, and their flavors are delicious. I am a big fan of the like milk chocolate crunchy toffee, <laughs> um, but their they're just their plain like milk chocolate bar is my favorite. Honestly, like with all their delicious flavors, they do like a um, like a pretzel one, like a dark chocolate pretzel, mm. which is also really tasty. Tony Chocolonely. Check it out. You can get it on Amazon or you can get it at like grocery store and that kind of thing. Check it out. Yeah, check it out. Not an ad. Hashtag. We just like the product. Just like the product. All right. Question nine. Once the richest family in America, which secretive clan owns the sixth largest privately held company in the United States? Besides their confectionery items, they also own non-chocolate brands like Orbit Gum, Combos, and Pedigree Pet Foods. The only like conglomerate I'm assuming Nestle. I'm going to say Nestle. Mm, they're not American. Those are Nestle's not American. Nestle's oh, it's not. Swiss. Yeah. Oh. Nestle uh, is a very, very big company, though. Oh, this is an American company you're yes. asking for. Mm-hmm. I see. I see. I see. I was. I misunderstood. Um. Phew, Unilever. Uh, <laughs> you I'm know, to- <laughs> I went to school with Joe Unilever. <laughs> Yeah, Joe, old Joe Unilever. He came to school in a helicopter every day. Um, oh, God. I'm trying to think. Hmm. Um, shoot. Is it Carnation? No. Oh, shoot. The answer is the Mars family. Oh, I didn't know the Mars family was American. Yes. Interesting. Yes, yes. So, um, yes. So they... They were like the original chocolate wars with the Hershey company in the 20th century. But anyway, the Mars family. In 1988, they were ranked as the richest family in America in Fortune magazine, though they have since been surpassed by the Waltons and the Cox. Um, As of April 2020, the private fortune of the family members combined was estimated to be around 126 billion with a b dollars nope nope um so the mars family they're very protective of their privacy they rarely if ever give any press interviews or with the exception of the actual president of the company right now uh, victoria b mars and her relative jacqueline mars they have never photographed in public um wow yeah they're very secretive very interesting like if you are super geeky in food history like me, there there are some really excellent books about the early American chocolate, the, Amer- the American chocolate wars um, between <laughs> the Hershey's and the Mars families. But anyway, FYI, uh, the original colors of M&M candies in 1941, um, they were red, yellow, violet, green, and brown. Violet hmm. was discontinued and replaced with tan in the late 1940s. Which was a mistake. <sighs> And then finally, question 10, Kitokatsu. That means you will certainly win. I'm going to name you four translated flavors of Japanese Kit Kats, and you tell me if these were ever officially commercially produced or if it is something that I just made up. Okay, I'm ready. Right, ready? First yes. one, European cheese. Yes, real. Yes, that is a real yes. Kit Kat. Um, edamame milkshake. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say yes. Yes, that is a real Kit Kat. Yes. Cough drop. I'm going to say no. Yes, it is a real Kit Kat. It is made with 2.1% cough drop powder that's compressed into two wafers muffled beneath a mask of white chocolate. Um, And lastly, buttermilk jalapeno. 
I'm going to say no. I'm, I did make that one up. You're right. <laughs> that one is not real. Um, so KitKat's marketing in Japan is thought to have profited from this accidental false cognate with kitokatsu, this Japanese phrase that means you will certainly win. Um, according to certain market research, the brain is highly linked to good luck charms, particularly among students before oh. examinations. And there have been more than 300 limited edition seasonal and regional wow. flavors of KitKat chocolate bars produced in Japan since the year 2000. So wow. that's like, they're, they're making they're like, cranking, cranking them, out. them out. Yeah. But that's real amazing. funny. Like there's, um, there was one that I really want to try. It's called like baked custard. And so it is meant for you to stick this in a toaster oven for two minutes because it has like, you know, uh, kind of caramelizing sugar on it. And it wants you to put oh. this whole Kit Kat in a toaster oven so that the sugar will caramelize. Then when you I bet that's delicious. I bet it's delicious. Yeah, exactly. I would eat the hell out of that. Yeah, yeah but there's some cool. really fun ones out there. Cool. Yeah, we're always looking for them when we're up in Canada because we they get a lot of imported. Mm-hmm. They're better at getting imported stuff from Europe and Asia. Um, so we're always trying to grab like an interesting Kit Kat for Josh and you. <laughs> <laughs> Do a snack or whack. Mm. Great. That was awesome. Yeah. I learned so much about chocolate. And now I'm very hungry for yeah. chocolate right now. Oops. Sorry. It's all right. All right. Well, thank you all for listening and playing along. And we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye.